So it's just a cheery question I thought I would ask. How many of you thought about your death today? Anyone out there? Uh, Jen, we can talk afterwards. That's, that's maybe abnormal. Um, yeah. <laughs> but for the rest of you, yeah, uh, and, and you did. Okay, I, I, I didn't, and besides three weird ones, out there, no. Um, not many of us probably do on a regular basis, and for most of us who are living relatively healthy lives in Bellingham, Washington, death is something that's kind of more of a fact or a fact of nature than it is something that we, we feel as an imminent reality most of the time, most of our days. We typically live as though we were going to experience long, fruitful lives well into our 70s, and for good reason, because statistically speaking, the average American lives well beyond 70 years, and the chances of death from unforeseen sudden circumstances are, you know, uh, compared to the whole, minuscule. For many of us, our days are full of small talk and management of different activities. If you have kids, you know maybe how it is. Uh, okay, who's taking this kid to practice and who's picking that one up from daycare? Uh, but you don't need children to be crazy about just managing life. And Who's getting groceries this week and what are we going to do this weekend? And life is full of stuff and activities and fun and fluff. And I think many of us have a sense that there will always be time tomorrow to go a little bit deeper In some ways, facing death, though, makes us appreciate the now and the moment. My grandfather is 91 years old, and he has written me and each of his grandchildren and children once a month a letter by hand for as long as I can remember. And a few years ago, about four years ago, when he started to have some signs of failing health, I began to scan every letter I got so that I would preserve it forever. And a couple weeks ago, he was admitted to the ER because he had collapsed. And it turns out he has a cyst in his spine that's pressing on his nerves, causing pain and causing numbness in his extremities. And hospice has been called in, and his days are likely shortly numbered. And I find myself reading now those old letters that are scanned on the, my computer reading between the lines all the stuff he wrote about the weather and his tomatoes in the garden and the local news reading underneath the jokes and the small talk and understanding that at the point after my grandmother died, there was a change in his voice. You know how people have a written voice. A certain sadness and yet a hopefulness. A resignation and a reaching out. There is the heart of the man beneath the small talk of the man and there's the deepened desperate desire in myself to be more attentive now that time is short. You know, in many ways, the four Gospels, that's the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, these accounts of Jesus' life, they give us information about Jesus, don't they? they? They tell us a lot about him, how he was born, and what kinds of things he did and said. They tell us about his relationship with the Father and suggest that Jesus is God incarnate. And the Gospels tell us about the character of God, and they offer us hope for new life because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the resurrection. They tell us all of that stuff. But if you are a follower of Jesus, or even if you aren't, you, you imagine yourself maybe as one, imagine yourself loving someone as much as you ever could, you know that Jesus is more than just a, a historical figure. He's a Savior and Lord. He's risen and reigning. And it's important as it is to know about Jesus. Don't you just long to know Jesus? 
Like, what is actually important to him beneath all of the things that he said and beneath all of the things that he taught in a public forum? What is the center of his heart and the center of his longings? Thankfully, we were given insight into those questions and longings. You know, in Scripture, we see multiple places where Jesus withdrew to pray, and we, we hardly ever know what he's praying. Like, we don't hear his words. And then in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, we get the Lord's Prayer, two versions of the Lord's Prayer, where the disciples come to Jesus, and, and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Like, they had heard Jesus praying, and they knew how to pray since they were little boys, but there was something in the quality of Jesus' prayer, and they were like, teach us to pray like that. And so we get our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We get this, here's how you pray, boys. But in John 17, we get something entirely different. We don't necessarily get a teaching on prayer. We get to overhear Jesus actually praying. I like to think of it as the Lord's other prayer. And in this prayer in John 17, Jesus bears his heart and his motives and his love for the Father and, and his heart about the disciples and what he thinks about the church throughout the ages. And I want to invite you to stand with me as I read John 17, 1 through 26. I'm going to read the whole prayer. And I want to encourage you, if you've heard this before or even if you haven't, to maybe close your eyes and pretend that you're Jesus' disciples And it's been the Lord's Supper already, and he's already washed your feet, and the one who's betrayed him has already gone out to the night to go get the Roman soldiers. And in, in moments, maybe just hours from now, Jesus will be arrested, and he knows it. And this is what he chooses to pray in that moment, and you get to overhear it. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men that you've gave, given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given them to them, and they received them and truly understand that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I, I am no, no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I, I guaranteed them, I guarded them, that not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that scripture would be fulfilled. 
But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, hear the prayer of your Son. We pray it today, thousands of years later. But it comes from your Son. Hear the prayer of the Son. Bless you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. It's a lot there. It's a lot there. Let's lay some groundwork. Let's just be frank. Multiple books, some of which are on my bookshelf that I've read in preparation for this over the last few years. Multiple books are written on this one chapter in John's gospel. So don't freak out when I tell you now that we're going to be in this chapter for five weeks. You're like, oh my gosh, what could he talk about about this for five weeks? Trust me, I won't even scratch the surface. Uh, it is my job to make it not boring, so you can tell me how I'm doing, but it is not the prayer's fault if this is boring. There's just such richness here that we need to sit in it for a while. And in fact, I would, I would just offer to you over the next few weeks to live in this prayer. When I use, that's kind of christian language, live in this prayer. Uh, pray it. Read it on a regular basis throughout these next weeks if you want to gain the maximum uh, payoff from being in this series. I, I just want to encourage you to do that. Today, what we're going to do is just focus on the first five verses of the prayer. And I want to recognize this tension that we're living in as we as we handle this sacred text. On the one hand, we are so distanced by time and culture and language, and to some degree, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to dig into this and, and understand some terms if we're going to get at the meaning of this text. But all of that exegetical work is so that we might hear this prayer as Jesus intended. 
And it begs the question, why did Jesus allow his disciples to overhear him praying to the Father in the first place? And why was it so important to them, like, hey, of all the stuff Jesus said and did, we got to write this down for later disciples. I think in the first place, Jesus is giving us the gift of intimacy with him. He's opening up his prayer closet. He's exposing his heart. He's sharing with us the vulnerable places of his desires. And and comes to find that he loves us very much. Like, you can't really escape that after you read this prayer. What an encouragement. The Lord of heaven and earth, on the night he was betrayed by human beings, prays for the salvation and preservation of these human beings. Makes me feel a little bit better. In the second place, Jesus' prayer in John 17 is an invitation, I think, to pray with him for the things that are on his heart. Do you ever get stuck in prayer, not feel like praying, not know what you ought to pray for? You, You could do worse than looking further than this prayer right here. You can't go wrong praying the themes and the desires of Jesus. So, with that basic foundation laid, Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. First, let's define some terms. Jesus opens his prayer with the words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he may glorify you. What is this hour you speak of, Jesus? Sorry, we've been watching a lot on Nacho Libre lately. Um, Okay, enough. In the broader biblical context, the hour is also known as the end of the age. It is the time when God would act decisively in history to bring salvation to his people. It is the expected time when God would come in his glory and rescue the oppressed and bring justice to the wicked. Okay? That's, that's the hour or the end of the age. That's, that's a pretty big moment. That's the moment all the prophets are looking forward to. That's, the, that's the, the hour or the age that all of these first century disciples are looking forward to. But in the Gospels, we see this idea of the end of the age or the hour being modified by Jesus. Over and over again in John's Gospel, we hear things like, the authorities wanted to kill Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. Okay? Or, or when he's arrested, he says to the worldly authorities, this is your hour. And we come to understand that the hour is the moment that Jesus goes to the cross. Now, how did the cross, a man dying on a Roman torture device, set anyone free? And how did the cross deal at all with injustice in the world? The wicked sure seem to prosper, corruption is as rampant as ever, and the world is still very broken. Here's the surprise to everyone. The Israelites likely thought themselves as victims of tyranny, and they were. The hour had come to be seen as the day when they would be glorified and vindicated, that Rome would fall and it would, their state of Israel would be reestablished by God. But instead, what God does through Jesus is something much bigger than just one nation's salvation. He deals with the massive problem of human sin and death. Every single person 
Jew, Gentile, Roman, Greek, doesn't matter, American, without Jesus is held captive to sin and its consequence, death. Rich and poor, criminals and the upright citizens, adults and children, sin is the universal infection of the human race. And the hour has come for God to act decisively in history. Okay, so that's what he's talking about in this prayer. The hour has come. What about the wicked? Don't they deserve justice? Well, well, yes, we do. Wait a minute, Chris. I'm not, I'm not wicked like those people on the news. Or Yes, we do. Don't the wicked deserve justice? Yes, we do. And the cross justifies us. We are the wicked. We are corrupt. And resurrection judges the enemy named death. And yet, there's still an age to come in which Jesus will return and make all things new. And at that time, he will judge the unrepentant and bring his own into new creation. Now, that's a lot of theology in just a few verses. I mean, this is quite a prayer. You know what I'm saying? You never get tired with this prayer. So the hour has come. The hour is the cross. How is it then that Jesus sees this hour as his moment for glory? How is he going to be glorified in this action? I think the reason this confuses us when we read it on the surface is because we typically have a backward view of glory. And our culture, isn't glory synonymous with fame or winning or being good at something? It's a construct of which uh, appeals to people's opinions of us. Like glory is something we get in our culture from other people. The amount of likes we have on Instagram or our 15 minutes of glory on TV or whatever it is. But the biblical glory, doxa, you, can, you guys say doxa, doxa, you just said glory in Greek, look at you, glory, doxa. It's something altogether different than people's opinions of you. Glory is the weight of a person's character as it's truly revealed. So, so Jesus desiring the Father to be glorified is directly in line with what he teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means hallowed means to glorify your name. That means may your name or your character or who you really are, Father, be made known to the world as it really is, not just what they think about you. What the world needs more than anything, one could argue, is to know the glory of God. When we experience the weight, the splendor of his glory, we rightly are put in our place. But at the same time, it's not just a shrinking, it's a dignification. God's glory brings us to our knees because like, whoa, we are not you. And at the same time, dignifies you because you're made in what? His image. Thank you. Some of this teaching's rubbing off after eight years. Okay. <laughs> You're made in his image. You are an icon, is the Greek word. You are an image bearer of God. And that is insanely dignifying. Amazing. If we realize the weight of God's glory in us and in other people we interact with, we could not seek fame by degrading ourselves, but we would live nobly and with purpose and substance, and we would be more fully human. Which I know, as I look at many of your lives you are on that trajectory. 
It's the only thing that where it's, it may be flattering to say, you know, you, you're putting on weight lately. The weighty gloriness, you know. <laughs> so Jesus prays, Abba, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And we see a, a window into Jesus' heart. Here he is about ready, out of obedience to go to the cross and be killed by Roman authorities, betrayed by his own friends. And he's concerned that he would be glorified so that, huge words, so that the Father would be glorified. That's what's important to Jesus, is that the Father would be glorified. Check out how God redefines glory by what he does. God's glory is revealed in Jesus, the rabbi, washing his disciples' feet, as Jen read earlier. God's glory is revealed in Jesus, trusting his Father so much that he obeyed him to the point of death. God's glory is revealing, uh, revealed in sending his only son to die instead of every man, woman, and child who actually deserved to die. He loves us so much that he sent his son in our place. That brings God glory. But there's another thing. Giving Jesus glory brings the Father glory because Jesus comes from the Father. Verse 5 reminds us that Jesus existed before the world even was. John's first readers may have read verse 5 and remembered the introduction to his gospel where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the eternally existing Word. And yet, He chose to empty Himself out as a sacrifice for us all. And if these two truths about Jesus and His glory weren't enough, consider this. God is glorified by Jesus because Jesus has the authority to grant eternal life to you and to me. And all who believe in Him we become children of God. All who believe in Him can now pray this prayer to the Father directly. Like, I'm so glad that that just rolled over many of you because it probably means like, yeah, I already know. I, I, I know we can pray to God. I love the fact that for many of you that concept is pedestrian because that means we've come a long way since Jesus died and was resurrected. Because that was not something that most of the world thought possible. And that is still not something in many religious traditions that you think you can just approach the, the Godhead or whatever the, the deity is as a loving father. That's something that Jesus has gifted us through his relationship, inviting us in. And what is this eternal life Jesus talks about? Jesus prayed, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. D.A. Carson writes, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as, a personal, as it is a personal knowledge of the everlasting one. I think eternal life would be horrible. Horrible if it was just like this forever. And maybe you have a really good life right now and, and you think, oh, it wouldn't be that bad. Just wait. I, it would be horrible if, if, if with my character flaws and, 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 and the sin that is in me and still comes out of me, um, the pain I experience, the pain I inflict on other people, and it, we're all part of this. It would be horrible if we just 
we're like this forever. That's not, that's not eternal life. Eternal life is, is this eternal life with God, with knowing him as he really is and being made in his image in a way that's not broken. This knowledge of God this, the scriptures speak of is more than simply knowing about God in an intellectual sense. It's knowing God, it, it, trusting him in, in, in faith and relationship. Knowing God is knowing exactly what we're created for, and there's no higher mission in life. Maybe you, you've heard about this knowing God. You've, maybe you've experienced it before, and it's fleeting, or you're in a dry season, or you've, you've been around church, and you hear about it all the time, but you're like, I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know if that's me. Listen to what J.A. Packer writes. He says, first we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. That's humbling. We must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. He goes on, many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. That's one of the last things most of us want to do is come face to face with how we lack in some area of our life. Especially when it's, it's our faith in God and we're part of this church and maybe you're in a Bible study or leading some ministry and you just kind of want to get on with things. The last thing you want to do is take stock about how far you are. But J.A. Packer, one of the eminent theologians of the last century, says that's exactly, you know, as he got older and older, oh, he's still alive, as he, as he gets older and older and continues to speak, it's just more and more humility coming out of his mouth. I find that extremely comforting, that this man that many people over, this, over the, the last uh, 80 years have revered so much could at the, these last, you know, late 80s, early 90s of his life just be talking about humility and being real and being, we need to pray this prayer because most of us, most of the time, feel that far. Let's stop here for a minute. Clearly, this prayer is full of theological richness, but let's not forget, in all that stuff, that we are listening to Jesus pray. What is important to him? God's glory, we found that out, that his true character would be revealed through the obedience to the Son, and what else is important to Jesus is our salvation. That's fantastic that he would be thinking about us in this final prayer before he goes to the cross. He prays that everyone the Father has given him would be in eternal relationship with, with, with God. If we stopped there and just marveled at what is important to Jesus, that would be amazing enough. And I recommend that we do that. Like I said earlier, like read the passage regularly throughout the next few weeks. But I, for those of you who are like, Oh my gosh, it's too much theology. Just give me something practical. Okay, I got something for you. Okay, practical people. Um, there's some things, I think, in here that help us to pray. Like, help me do something. Okay, here you go. First is the language Jesus uses. And, and I know we've got uh, our, our kids up with us too. This is helpful for you guys too, I think. Um, what kind of words does Jesus use in this prayer? Does he use fancy words? Do you get the sense he was just talking to his disciples and then he, well, hold on, I'm going to pray. Glorious Father, thou art so majestic, how thy, you know, 
you, you don't get any of that. Like, Jesus doesn't use fancy words, big theological terms. He prays as a beloved son. He prays simply. He has a conversation with his father. After all, that's exactly how he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And he encourages us, if we mimic him in this, to pray for ourselves and to pray for other people. You, you don't pray for things that you can accomplish in your own power. I mean, you can. Why not just do them? Dallas Willard is famous for saying, and I'm just paraphrasing, he's like, hmm, if you have a flat tire on the side of the road and you have a spare tire and you have a jack and you have a lug wrench, you can pray all you want about the tire. You're better off just to change the tire because that's something within your sphere of power. Like God's given you the ability to do that. Or call AAA if you don't have that ability. <laughs> but if your friend, he goes on to write, has an addiction to heroin, you can try an intervention and you can try to talk them out of using heroin, but you'd better pray because their soul is likely lost, their life is likely lost, unless something significant, someone significant intervenes. These are the areas. We, we, Jesus is praying about these things because without the Father's help, they won't come to pass. He invites us to pray those longings of our hearts. If you were hit by that thing by J.I. Packer about you know, feeling far from God or being humble about where you're at with God, one of my, my go-to prayers is, Lord, help me to love you more. Would you put in me a desire for your word? Seems pretty elementary for the pastor to be praying that prayer. You know, you know you're where you're at a lot of the times too, though. Wouldn't it be nice for the Spirit to rise up in us and to give us more sweetness? I want to be like the psalmist who says the word of God is like honeycomb. Sometimes a little like mashed potatoes without without any gravy, you know what I mean? Honeycomb, yes, that's what I want. Jesus prays because he is about to go to the cross, and he prays for help. Did you catch that? Jesus prays for help. Help to remain obedient in his most difficult hour. The hour has come. The plan he made with the Father from the very beginning is now before him, but he asks for help because it will be the hardest thing he's ever had to endure. What are the things that you need help with? What are the things that your loved ones, your neighbors, and the world needs help with? Can you think of any? Yeah. Yes. Just Jeff on duty the other night at Bainbridge had some naked dude shooting a rifle. You saw Como News. Uh, a dude tried to open the door on an airplane going to Beijing the other night out of Seattle, like open the emergency door. Uh, those are just like anecdotal examples. The, the world is broken, right? The world is very broken. But what are we going to do with North Korea? Lord, have mercy that we don't start some craziness over there. What are we doing with racial injustice in our country? What are we doing with gender inequality in our country? What are we doing with, with, with the housing situation? There, there's, there's broken things going on. And, and, and that's just out there. What about our own, our own relationships? This is an invitation to pray about these things that we need help with because we're not strong enough to do them by ourselves. 
a final application comes from this observation. That Jesus prays, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Let me ask you an honest question. Do you think that as Jesus is praying that, that he thinks, that God thinks he needs a reminder? Let me read it again. This is eternal life. Jesus is praying this prayer to the Father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life, Father, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. My question is, do you think that Jesus is praying that prayer because he thinks the Father forgot that eternal life is that people would know him? No, I mean, the Father, of course, knows his theology pretty well. Theology, theos, is God. It's about him, right? So he knows all that stuff. Why is Jesus then giving God a theology lesson? I don't think Jesus is giving God a theology lesson. I think Jesus is doing what the psalmist and the prophets and Moses and Christians throughout the centuries have done, and that is we encourage ourselves not by wishful thinking, but by praying back to God the truths that he's given us in Scripture. David oftentimes has said he, he encouraged himself, and how does he do that? By praying about the things that God had done in the past. He recites back to God his faithful track record. And that's something that we can do when we're discouraged. We can just get a journal out and we can start like, you know what? I don't sense you right now, but you have been with me. And I'm just going to start writing all the ways that I know you have acted in my life. And you've acted in my friend's life. And your word says this. And I'm just, I'm just reminding you now, your word says this. That's who you are. That's who I need to remember that you are in my time of trial. That's something that, that Jesus models for us in this prayer. So that's insanely practical. So there you go, practical people. But as always, I never want to end on mere good advice. You can hear a TED Talk for that, or I'm not going to say anything else. But I want to end with good news. If you're feeling inadequate about how well you know God, Jesus' prayer has good news for us. Here, uh, he reminds us that we've been chosen out of the world. And, well, okay, well, that's good for them. I, don't, I bet you I'm not one of the chosen ones. Uh, how do you know if I've been chosen? Well, if you have a desire for God, have ever had a desire for God, or have a desire to have a desire for God, it's because he's at work in your heart. He's drawing you. The scriptures say that we can't even want to come to the Father without him choosing to draw you to himself. So if you want to know God, God is at work in you and will reveal himself to you. Keep showing up. Keep praying. Keep open to him. Jesus prays for it. Do we really believe that the Father won't answer the prayer of the Son? Let me just restate that. Jesus has prayed in this prayer that you would have eternal life, that you would know the Father through the Son, that you would be preserved from the world. Jesus prays that to the Father. I think that the Father has answered that prayer. And the second thing is that Jesus says all authority has been given to him, authority over all flesh, over all creations, 
four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, four books that tell us what he's like, compassionate, truthful, loving, direct, merciful, forgiving, a servant king, a teacher, the living God, wise, honoring to women and children, and this one is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. No matter what your struggles, what your fears, what your predicament, the one who has authority is Jesus, and he's good, and he's faithful, and that is amazing news. One final word about glory. This prayer of Jesus makes it clear that one of his primary desires is to glorify the Father, to hallow the Father's name. And all week I'd been focusing on this from the perspective of, oh, glorifying the Father must be what's important to Jesus. Or, look how Jesus and the Father are so submissive to one another. Like, oh, Jesus just wants to out-glorify the Father, and he prays the Father would glorify him. What a great relationship. And both of those takes are true. But then it hit me as I was reading through the Psalms. I was struck with Israel's vocation as a nation, as a people. Their job was to give glory to God. That was their mission. They were called out from among the nations to be representatives for all humanity, our representatives. And they were called to do what all human beings are called to do to give glory to God. And they fail over and over again. And the experiment seems to have gone off the rails, except that from the line of the tribe of Judah comes Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled the vocation of Israel and all humanity, and he brought glory to the Father. Glory through his obedience and righteousness, and that is the gospel of John 17, 1 through 5. So, Father, hear his prayer. Accept your glory from our hero, our champion, our Savior and King. He has done it. He has done what we cannot Father, hear his prayer. All Jesus, um, <clears throat> to be glorified that you may be glorified. Father, hear his prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us this insight into your heart. And we pray that we would own uh, these desires that you have. On the one hand, we thank you for for glorifying the Father in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, for doing what we couldn't do. But for also giving us a place in your new world where our lives can reflect that glory, where our lives can, can be pleasing to God. And, and I pray that you would capture our hearts and imaginations to be those kinds of people. Amen.